0: Leviticus 24, Leviticus 23 through 25 is one section, by the way, it, it all has to do with the calendar, uh, I might have taken it all as one, but that would have been far too much. Now I have a decision to make about this intervening material about the blasphemer in the middle, that may be its own sermon, or perhaps we'll take that to the end, we'll see next time. For now, we take it straight to the middle, chapter 24, verses 1 through 9, and the sermon will cover chapter 23, 1 through 24. Nine. Hear the word of God. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, command the children of Israel that they bring to you pure oil of pressed olives for the for for the light to make the lamps burn continually outside the veil of the testimony in the tabernacle of meeting Aaron shall be in charge of it from evening until morning before the Lord continually. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. He shall be in charge of the lamp's on the pure gold lampstand before the Lord continually. And you shall take fine flour and bake twelve cakes with it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each cake. You shall set them in two rows, six in a row, on the pure gold table before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each row, that it may be on the bread for a memorial, uh, an offering made by fire to the Lord. Every Sabbath he shall set It in order before the Lord continually being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant and it shall be for Aaron and his sons and they shall eat it in a holy place for it is most holy to him from the holy offerings of the Lord made by fire by a perpetual statute. Let us pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your word once again. May we confess that. Uh, To our fleshly minds, uh, this is not the most interesting text. We struggle with Leviticus, uh, but, uh, oh Lord, we ask you that that through the preaching of your word, uh, a great appeal from this book would be made to the inner man, and we would be greatly strengthened and nourished in our faith. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We come now to a new aspect of holiness. We are still in what is the holiness code, and uh, we've arrived at uh, the final stage of holiness that the Lord instructs the people through Moses. Uh, something which is not entirely unseen before, but which is here uh, given a new place of prominence and as seen as part uh, of the holiness code. Uh, so it is situated in a new setting that we've seen in the Exodus already. And it is the concept uh, of the calendar. A better way to put that in the language of holiness is sacred time. Sacred time. That's not uh, altogether unfamiliar. Uh, Certainly, uh, we saw it in Exodus. These feasts have already been uh, established there. But even at the beginning of the world, when the Lord uh, hallowed the seventh day, there you have the concept of sacred time. So even Adam in the garden knew something of sacred time. He knew something of the Sabbath. Uh, And so you find this here with the emphasis, not surprisingly, on the Sabbath, first of all, and then on the feasts. The the calendar of Israel is part of the holiness code. As part of uh, the concern, uh, not only for personal, but national holiness. Morales, in his book on Leviticus, uh, very helpfully explains the importance of this within the broader concern of holiness. He says, one might ask, for example, what good it is to have a sanctuary like cosmos, sacred space, that is the tabernacle, with a priestly humanity, sacred status, obviously the priests, apart from appointed times of fellowship with God, sacred time. So sacred space, sacred status, is that of any value without sacred times of meeting? He goes on, the tabernacle, after all, was meant by God to be a tent of meeting. The final third of Leviticus resounds with festive gatherings of Israel's calendar. A sure signal that the dwelling of God has indeed become the tent of meeting between Israel and God. Now that point is obviously true. It's as it's tr- it's true of us as it was true for Israel. Uh, it, it will not do to have a church and to have a people if you don't have appointed times of meeting. In the New Covenant, obviously, we call that the Lord's Day, the Christian Sabbath. So it was... In the Old Covenant, we have a series uh, throughout these verses of festivals Uh, and throughout what I want to do to use the language of Gerhardus Voss is to look the ceremonial law under the heading of uh, sign and type, sign and type. The sign is what it signifies presently as a spiritual truth. The type is what it looks forward to in the New Covenant, sign and type. Now, the passage begins with an emphasis on holy convocations. I wonder if that sounds familiar. I, I, I laugh because I, I doubt it does. I, I, I might be the only one in the church who loves our directory of public worship. But, uh, but that is the language of our directory of public worship. Holy convocations. Well, here the Lord is uttering uh, through Moses the times of holy convocation for Israel. That is to say, a holy convocation is a day or a season where people were to gather together for some set purpose, uh, that set purpose being defined by God, but always tied, to, uh, tied in some way to worship itself. For Leviticus, as I've said many times, and here I find one of the strongest indications of this, was the Old Covenant, Directory of Public Worship. And I can't imagine anyone wanting to dispute that, although I've never heard anyone say that before I've said it. It really is obvious. But as I say, the same language is found in our directory of public worship uh, in its language of the Sabbath uh, and, and the importance of gathering together on the Sabbath. It says the Lord say is a day of holy convocation. Now, I will be honest with you. I didn't know where they got that language, but now I know. And that's part of the value of reading through Leviticus so much that you, you you didn't know where it came from, is coming to light. The biblical imagery that we find in the New Covenant is suddenly shining brightly. It's a day of holy, holy convocation, just like these days were for Israel. God is saying, set apart these times to gather together and worship me. The day, it says, on which the Lord calls his people to assemble for public worship. The Lord calls the whole congregation of each local church to the sacred duty and high privilege of assembling for public worship on each Lord's Day. So, the, the Christian Sabbath is the holy convocation of the New Covenant. These are the holy convocations of the Old Covenant. It's the language of worship. Worship is a corporate affair. I, I, I like to contrast what we do here in the man in the woods praying to God. Well, he's worshiping there, but this is, this is capital W worship. This is the kind of worship that God is after and that he's commanding us to. It is a time of assembling. For reasons that God has defined, always remember that the church uh, the language of the church is that of a gathering ecclesia, an assembly of god 's people, a holy convocation, and the first of these very naturally is the weekly Sabbath. There is no surprise here God calls them to their holy convocations, verse two, and in verse three he says, "Six days shall Work be done, but the seventh is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. Not only there, but it's mentioned briefly in verse 38. And then uh, in verse 8 of chapter 24, every Sabbath he shall set uh, the bread before the lamps. He's speaking of the priests. And so the ceremony that's outlined in chapter 24, verses 1 through 9, Is a Sabbath activity. So the focus here is on the weekly Sabbath. Basically the fourth commandment is repeated here. Although it is clothed in the garb of verse 2. And so it's stated a little differently than it is in, in Exodus. It's a Sabbath of solemn rest. A holy convocation. You don't find that language at Sinai. It's a day of worship. A Sabbath of Sabbaths, literally, when it says a Sabbath of solemn rest, literally a Sabbath of Sabbaths, a high holy day, in other words. And here is the duty which belongs to to the day you shall do no work, God says. Now, that resembles exactly what he said at Sinai. But why is that? You see, here it's clarified. The temptation when we read the fourth commandment is to think that the essence of Sabbath is the absence of labor. But that isn't true. And if you go on and keep reading the Bible, you'll see that quite clearly. And certainly this sheds greater light on it. It's not just the absence of of, of labor. That is not the essence of what the Sabbath is about. It's a day of worship. It's a holy convocation. The reason you set aside your worldly labors is so that you might gather together to worship God. And that has been true in every covenant. And as I said, that would have been true of Adam even in the garden. He would have set aside the labors of the garden in order to worship God on this high holy day. And so uh, Sabbath is set forth here uh, in in terms of this higher purpose communion with God, a day of holy convocation for the people of God, a day of worship. You see that at the outset. And and, and and then, well, I said that the Sabbath is clothed in the garb of verse two. But what's interesting to notice is that the rest of the feasts are clothed in the garb of verse three. You may have noticed that they're spoken of as Sabbaths. Uh, the, the emphasis of on the seventh day or on the Sabbath, uh, comes, uh, over and over again. Seven days, seven months, uh, seventh month and so on. The importance of Sabbath underlines everything, uh, that is being said from there on. But if you look at what occurs, uh, in chapter 24, verses one through nine, you have what Morales calls an idealized Sabbath. Uh, the 12 loaves are to be set in order and then the lamps are to be shining upon them. And this is to happen. The lamps are to be kept burning every day for the light of Israel must never go out. But as the loaves are set before them each Sabbath, it is a picture of what Sabbath is, namely uh, the light of God shining upon the 12 tribes of people. Or you could look at it from the standpoint of the people, the people of God basking in the light of God's glory. That is precisely what The Sabbath is all about. It is a picture of God dwelling with man and with man dwelling in the presence and the light of God's glory. Now, all of this imagery is intentional. I'm not making this up. I'm not playing fast and loose with scripture. When you read these things, God is speaking and he is dealing in images. And we are meant to see the spiritual truths that are meant by these these things, the signs. Now, let me just make uh, two more comments about the Sabbath. One of the things that's interesting, we find uh the showbread and the Sabbath here. Uh this occurs again in 1 Samuel 21 when David is meant eat the showbread on the Sabbath, and then Jesus seizes upon this event in uh his teaching when his disciples were um, when they were uh, criticized by the Pharisees for e- eating heads of grain on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, well, did you know David did that on the Sabbath? He ate the showbread. Now, it says here that the people of God uh, must do that, must not do that it is reserved for the priests. And yet, what's so fascinating to notice, and I don't I don't want to dwell on this, but as I, I call this an idealized Sabbath, uh, the, the showbread uh, before the lamps. Seeing that as being the case, I'm not surprised to find Jesus taking this very idea of the showbread on the Sabbath and saying, here's what the Sabbath is all about. I don't want to detain you there. I just want to notice that as a point of interest. But but, but the the only other thing I would want to say about the Sabbath is that it becomes part of the cycle of feasts. So that the Sabbath as a moral law is integrated into the ceremonial law. Now, why is that important? It's important because when Paul says in Colossians 2 that, that no one is to hold you to the Old Testament calendar, uh, and he uses the word Sabbaths there, he's saying don't go back under the ceremonial law. He, he, he is talking about uh, this. He's talking about the Old Testament calendar, which included the Sabbaths as part of that calendar, but also the feasts as Sabbaths. You, you need to see that. And Paul is saying you're free from that. Now, I'm going to make that point again in a second. But but realize that the Sabbath was integrated into that, but it was never limited to that. And so Paul can say you're freed from the ceremonial calendar, the Sabbaths of the Old Covenant. And yet, you are still bound to the Sabbath because Jesus Christ is the Lord of the Sabbath. And by the way, Christians have always worshipped on the first day of the week the Christian Sabbath. But from this, we turn to the feast days. So looking at the Sabbath, we turn to the feast days. And immediately we are confronted with a question. I I wanted to say one more thing about Sabbath, and I'm not going to let it slide. I want to say it now, and that is the language of you also have the language of creation, and you have the language of eternity in chapter 24. But then, having said that, turning to the feasts, we are confronted with a question, and that is whether such days can be found in the New Covenant. I've just argued that the, the, the first day of the week when the Christians were worshipping was the Christian Sabbath. It wasn't the Old Covenant Sabbath, but it was the Christian Sabbath. But what about the feasts? Now, this is a fascinating question. I'm surprised it's so fascinating. To me, it's very straightforward, but this is the kind of thing, uh, that pe- I find people debating. Uh, in fact, I have a friend, uh, who visits this church from time to time as a URC minister. And, and, uh, and, and he likes to jab me about, uh, the Christian calendar. He says, what about the feast days, brother? And so he's using the language of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And his argument is that feast days belong in the New Covenant, not just the Old Covenant. Now, that is a historic argument, certainly in the Dutch tradition, which is what the URC is. Let me say, this is a friendly argument. So I don't want to make too much of it. It's something you find in the Lutheran church. Even some Presbyterians, I'm sorry to say, uh, today are arguing for the presence of feast days. Now, why would they argue for this? Well, I confess I'm not sure. I will not invent arguments for them. I can't find any reason in the New Testament... For feast days, in fact, I find, as I'll say, many arguments saying be careful. Be careful not to observe them. And so I admit I am perplexed. I am perplexed. Except that I know that many men whom I love and some whom I admire argue for these things. One thing uh, I I did come across this week. uh, I find this to be a weak argument, but let me just give it to you. And that is that the new covenant appropriates these into its own calendars because, into its own calendar because many of, uh, the great things occurred on these important days. So Jesus was crucified on the Passover, the Spirit was poured out on Pentecost, and so forth. And so they become Christian holy days as a result of that. Well, that's how the argument goes. But as I say, I find such an argument to be very weak, and I find myself in agreement with the Puritans who pointed to such passages in Paul, as evidence that the feast days especially had passed away. Not the Sabbath, though the Sabbath is a cycle of the feasts. That uh, they passed away as part of the ceremonial system. Passages such as this. And, and I, I already quoted, uh, or I referenced at least, Colossians 2. But Galatians chapter 4. And here I I, I truly wonder whether Paul could be any Clearer. He says, now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. You're beginning to observe the feasts. Similar argument, as I said, in Colossians 2. And also Romans chapter 14. This is the activity, he says there, of the weaker brother. He can't quite get past the old covenant. He doesn't see quite clearly now what it means to be in the new covenant. As I say, I wonder if Paul could be any clearer to the one who wants to observe the special seasons. I fear I've labored over you in vain. Paul is saying to go back to the feast is equivalent to trying to go back under the law. It's seeking refuge in the shadow when we possess the substance. What Bonar calls a sad truth concerning Israel. And that sad truth is she was content in the shadow when she was meant to embrace the substance when Christ had come. But the question then arises, if that is the case, and sometimes the argument goes too far in the other direction, cannot the same thing thus be said of the Sabbath? And there were those in the reform camp who say this. Not only have the feasts passed away, but so have the Sabbath. Well, obviously not. For the simple reason that the Sabbath was greater than the ceremonial laws. I've already argued. Of course it was found there as part of the ceremonial law. But it was also greater than the ceremonial law. It was found in the garden. It was found in the Ten Commandments. And I would note the irony in passing. That those who hold to the feast days tend to slight the Sabbath. This tends to be. A kind of inverse principle that is invariably, invariably true. I'm not alone in making this observation. Hughes Oliphant Old in his book on worship, on his chapter on the Sabbath. Uh, essentially makes the argument, and, and the church has done this through the ages. There have been times where she emphasized the Sabbath, other times when she emphasized the feast days. And he says to the extent that the church at times has elevated the feast days in its, uh, in its calendar uh, in, in opposite fashion. She's emphasized the Sabbath. In other words, to the degree that she's emphasized the feast days, she has neglected the Sabbath, which seems to be to me to be more or less inevitable. Because one cannot focus on the temporary without neglecting the permanent and the eternal. We are not meant to focus on the feast days, beloved. We are meant to hold to the Sabbath. But for now, let us turn to those feast days and see them as signs and types of uh, both spiritual truths and greater, uh, greater realities to come in the New Covenant. Signs and types as part of the Old Covenant des- dispensation. And what I find so fascinating here is to notice that all of these can be found in the New Testament. All of them can, in one way or another. Uh, in, in, in the language of the New Testament, the imagery that was present in the feast as types is seized upon and then expounded as part of uh, the, the Christian message, uh, which clarifies to me once more that these things were meant to be signs and types of greater spiritual realities that we presently enjoy. That's precisely what we're meant to see, and that's the value of what we have here. And so I would just briefly uh, move through these. I don't have any great interest in, in dwelling upon all of the, the details of each, but you begin with the Feast of the Passover in verse 5. That was to be a memorial of the first Passover, which you may remember from from Exodus. And really, that's what gets everything going for Israel as a nation. Her deliverance from Egypt at the Passover. And this is to be the feast that gets everything going. Now, the symbolism of the feast is very simply that of deliverance and salvation, uh, which comes through the blood of the lamb and the typology couldn't be clearer, and this is the first instance of many where you see that the New Covenant simply seizes upon this language and then says this is explicitly true of, uh, of the Christian message. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that Christ is our Passover. You see, he doesn't say, this is why, well, I, I just wonder if he could be clearer, and we have to get this clear in our minds. He doesn't say, Christian, observe the Passover. He says, Christian, Christ is our Passover. Do you you understand the difference? Do you understand what Paul is saying? That everything the Passover feast meant for the Israelite is now realized and fulfilled for the Christian in Jesus Christ. He is our Passover lamb. He is the one who sacrifices himself and sheds his blood so that we might be delivered from sin, its power, its guilt, and so forth so that uh, the angel of death might pass over even us. Number two, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, this was to follow the Passover on the 15th day, and its basic meaning was, well, following the Passover, the Israelites fled with unleavened bread, and this, uh, this feast was to... Be a memorial of that. The, the, the symbolism here is the holiness which follows deliverance. God, having delivered them by the blood, now calls them to a life of holiness. That's what unleavened means. And that, uh, that same logic is found once more in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. So we are always confident. Oh, excuse me. I'm in 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He says... Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You see, Paul Paul isn't saying, Christians, you need to eat unleavened bread. Uh, Sometimes I get that question. Should we eat unleavened bread at the Lord's Supper? I I think again we're missing the point. The whole idea of the unleavened bread has to do with your spiritual state and the status of our Christian fellowship. Now that Christ has been and become our Passover, He shed our blood for us. We were defiled, now we've been made clean. Our sins have been atoned for. What results from that? Holiness. That's what the unleavened bread is. Again, listen to what He says. Let us keep the feast. He's speaking spiritually, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Put off the old man, put on the new live according to the fruits of the new man. He's speaking of the purity of the church, tr- of the church, the purity of the church, uh, he says, which is always in jeopardy. So she is admonished in typical fashion. Keep the feast. Keep the feast with a sincere, a pure, a holy life. Number three, the feast of first fruits uh, the basic meaning here is uh, that uh, when Israel was to enter the land, she was to offer uh, the first fruits of the harvest to God and, and then annually at the beginning of the harvest after that, and the, the priests were to, to wave it before the Lord as an offering. It's a wave offering. And the symbolism was, uh, very simply, that all we have comes from God. And we acknowledge this by giving the first of what we have to him. It's the same principle that you find uh, in the tithe. But the typology, well, again, it's amazing to find that this very language is used in the New Testament. Several times, in fact, we are told that Christ is the firstfruits in his resurrection of those who have fallen asleep. Once again, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, uh, verse 20, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. But each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits afterward, those who are Christ that is coming. You see, uh, the principle is spiritualized and the fullness is realized not at harvest time, but it is realized in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What is that uh, representative, uh, representative of? It's representative of our resurrection. It's the beginning of a great harvest that will come at the end of the age when all of us will be raised along with Christ and our bodies will even be made to resemble his what is our assurance of that it's the first fruits of his resurrection Uh, in a similar fashion the holy spirit is spoken of as the first fruits chapter 8 verse 23 of the book of romans not only that but we also have the first fruits of the spirit even we ourselves grown within ourselves eagerly waiting for the adoption the redemption of our body again it's the same thing we have the Holy Spirit now. We're looking forward to the harvest. What is the harvest? It's the end of the age. And Jesus says the same thing in the parable of the harvest. The Feast of Pentecost, number four, the Feast of Weeks. The basic meaning is uh, the 50th day, the seven weeks or the seven Sabbaths after the first fruits. So you had the first fruits and then uh, and then 50 days later you would have the harvest, the end of the harvest. You would observe this feast. The symbolism was simply that of celebration, celebrating God's provision, how thankful we are, and it is out of this uh, symbolism that we even find the church at times celebrating seasons of Thanksgiving. And yes, that includes the yearly Thanksgiving that we have uh, after the fashion of our pilgrim fathers. But also, you may remember we had a Thanksgiving service in this church when we were able to, to buy it outright. Uh, our Book of Order talks about that. There are seasons of Thanksgiving in the Christian life. That's That's the principle here. That's the symbolism. But the typology here, in what is less than a straight line, is actually the church. Pentecost was a type of the church, which was formed, of course, on Pentecost, wasn't it? When the spirit was poured out, that's when the church began to be. Now, how does this relate to the symbolism of the feast? And here I confess it isn't altogether clear. And so I'm not going to pretend to offer an answer. As I say, it's less than a straight line, though it is clear that in the Lord's providence that this uh, imagery is meant to be fulfilled in the life of the church since the church was formed on Pentecost. The Feast of Trumpets. This is the commencement of the seventh month, the month of months, the month of feasts, when so many of these great things occurred. The symbolism is, with the blowing of the trumpet, the voice of God. We think of what John says in Revelation chapter 1 verse 10. That I heard the voice of Jesus. It was like the blowing of a trumpet. The hearkening of God's voice. Summoning the people in almost warlike fashion. It's a mighty sound. It causes all to cease and it begins something new. The typology. Again, I, I'm i just amazed to see every image is is found in the new covenant. And this no less than the others. This points to, to the last day. When all is made to cease. When something new and glorious begins. Especially in the life of the people of God. And this day is marked out. By the same phenomenon. First uh, Thessalonians. Chapter 4. Verse 16. He says. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. With the voice of an archangel. And with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will raise or will rise first. Next, the day of atonement, the basic meaning. Uh, surely by now we're aware of this. It's the day in which atonement occurs. The special day, one day uh, in all the year when the high priest performs all the ceremonies of Levit- Leviticus 16. The question is, why is it put here? And if you look at the way the language is uh, used in terms of its place in the in the calendar, Israel's calendar, uh, for one thing, it is simply to remind them here is one of Israel's high holy days. And so the day of atonement was itself a day of holy convocation. Let the people remember that. But the emphasis, uh, if you look at what God says here, is upon the disposition of the people. Now, that was found in Leviticus 16, but that's the clear emphasis here. As a day of holy convocation, the Lord is saying, here is how I want you to worship me on this day. I want you to afflict your souls. I want you to humble yourself. Very likely it meant something like a day of fasting, a day of repentance, a day of confession, as though to remind them, observe the day in this way, set it apart as holy, and engage in this activities the symbolism was that of course of the removal of sin expiation but accompanied with that on the people on the part of the people is that of mourning for sin afflicting the soul reminding the people uh, and this is surely a truth which stands today that atonement is costly you don't deal with this truth lightly And glibly, with an easy smile on your face, you recognize that we are dealing here with the removal of sin. And whose sin? My sin. My sin, which God is calling me to confess. It was my sin that pierced the lamb. It was my sin that caused his blood to be shed on my behalf. Yes, God says, afflict your souls on this day. Let us never think of reconciliation between God and man on easy terms. It isn't just what it costs. The Lamb, his blood, but what it costs the sinner, namely his tears. But then there is the typology. Now there's no difficulty here. The typology of the Day day of Atonement points to the cross itself. The day on which uh, sin was put away once for all by the by the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. There atonement is made. An atonement which never needs to be repeated. It is final, it is finished, it is complete. And all that Israel did on that day, as a type, looked forward to that great day when Christ would shed his blood for Israel and for us, making a full end of their sin. Hebrews chapter 7 through 10 very eloquently outlines that for us. The one sacrifice for sin, once for all. The final is the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. And the basic meaning is is outlined when Israel was to, as a memorial to dwell in booths themselves. Uh, celebrating uh, and remembering God says that your generations verse 43 may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt I'm the Lord your God so it was a memorial once more of the exodus one of the things uh, that well we actually find this in several places in the New Testament but but one of the things that we need to know is that this was one of, uh, if not the primary feast in Israel's calendar in those days, the days when Christ dwelt among us. It was a day of great rejoicing. Uh, and that's what it was to be. The Lord called the people to rejoice. Uh, this was being observed uh, while the events occurred in John chapter seven, if you read that chapter, and I, I do want to read a couple of verses from that chapter. But first, the, the symbolism of the day, uh, as I say, was that of great joy. Israel is commanded to rejoice on that day. In fact, that's the only time you find the language of rejoicing in uh, this this summary calendar. The great joy and gladness that the Exodus brought about. And yet here we find in the days of Jesus how Israel attempted to make, uh, as Bonar says, the shadow more substantial. I like that very much. She attempted to make the shadow more substantial, especially in the days And the substance dwelt among uh, them because they added to it. It was not just the dwelling in booths, but they added this ceremony of of gathering jars of water and pouring it out in the temple. You can't find that in Leviticus 23. And so they attempted to make the shadow more substantial. Although Jesus doesn't uh, miss the opportunity this presents to point, even in their false imagery, how he represents the fullness of the day. When he says in John chapter 7, uh, verses 37 through 38. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Again, that was not the imagery you find in Leviticus. But it was the imagery the Jews were using as they added to it. As they tried to make the shadow more substantial. Or another instance, you think of. Uh, And and I admit I'm embarrassed I never realized this I never thought of this a single time until this week and so maybe you've never thought of it although maybe you've thought of it a hundred times but it was this that Peter had in mind when he said to when he said uh, to Jesus on the Mount of uh, Transfiguration Lord let us let us make booths that we can dwell here he thought that Jesus was bringing in the end of the age he realized uh, what the Feast of Booths represented and so he got that right but he misunderstood what the transfiguration meant. He was so uh, bedazzled by the glory of Jesus, he thought the end of the age was there. Well, again, I would would note uh, what Bonar says. He says of Peter that he spoke confusedly, but in his very confusion he was led to utter more truth than he really knew or meant. It is when the Lord shall come in his glory and the kingdom has been set up by him in power that the anti-type of the Feast of Tabernacles shall arrive. And so we see that Jesus did both. He both made his abode among us. And he will make his permanent. That is in the days of his flesh. And he will make his permanent dwelling among us. When he comes as Bonar says in his glory. And the kingdom has been set up in his power. There we will find the true typology of the feast of tabernacles. So in a sense we're still waiting for that aren't we. We're still like Peter thinking it's come but it hasn't. We're still looking forward to it. But uh, let me just bring this to a close by saying uh, that I am amazed at what a complete picture the feasts present of our salvation. I wonder if you noticed that. In fact, uh, if, if, if you paid attention as I was reading it, you may have noticed Images that I didn't cover. And how could I possibly cover this in one sermon? You see, I began the week thinking, what will I what will I possibly say about the feast? And here I, I've come to the end, and I think there's so much I didn't say. And yet, I think at least I've given you a picture and a sense of, of salvation as it comes in the new covenant. Not just the spiritual realities, but the fullness of these things in the new covenant. The feasts are a picture of these things. But that is precisely what the ceremonial law is and what it is meant to convey. And so there's really no surprise here. It was always meant to anticipate and to show forth the greater glories of the new covenant. And those glories having come to then pass away. But do you realize that the opposite is also true? And I've been struck by this repeatedly as I've worked through the Leviticus. So many surprising discoveries for me, the Christian. Because once you get to the new covenant, you, you see that the new co- I mean the New Testament... Uh, All of this imagery is brought forth, all of it. And our salvation and Christ's work and the work of the Holy Spirit and the life of the church is communicated in terms of the language of Leviticus. So that our life as Christians and as members of the new covenant is fitted With these images or to these images. It's clothed in the garb of these images. What I'm saying is. How can a man understand what it is to be a Christian. If he doesn't understand this. If he hasn't got a concept of what the first fruits was all about. Or the feast of tabernacles. Or the day of atonement. Do you understand what I'm telling you? And so why would anyone preach Leviticus? Maybe some of you have asked that. Maybe some people have stopped coming in the evening because I'm preaching Leviticus. Well, really, I look at it like this. I don't understand the man who says I have no interest in this book. I cannot regard such a man as being a Christian. For here is a book I am saying that is not just for the Jew. Here is a book that is for the Christian. Uh, And and, uh, all that I've said I can only pray would help you to see that, to see the gospel In the Old Covenant, but also to see the Old Covenant as a help to our understanding of the new. Amen. And let us return praise to God by standing together and singing hymn number 53 of the Blue Trinity Hymnal. Please stand. Hymn 53.